Today, I wanted to speak to you on a subject that everybody knows everything about, but most of us know very little about, and that is the subject of love. And the Christian ethic, the command of our Lord to love one another. You go, oh, that's no problem. I listen to the radio. They talk about love all the time. Really? Or I watch TV, or I like romantic comedies, and they talk about love all the time. Thank you, sir. And they may talk about what they understand love to be, but there's very little love in the world. One of the shocking things, for those of you who aren't out of school yet, I don't know if we see any teenagers here, but one of the things that will shock you when you get out in the world is that it's a very hard, cruel place, and you don't appreciate how much love and TLC you have in your home until you leave home and go out into the world where people don't have your back, people don't care about you, and uh, the reality of what you had and didn't appreciate can come strikingly home. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and I read this passage to you a while back when I preached on God's universal call to holiness. And there is part of this passage, he says, God's will for us is that we be holy. In case you wanted to know what's God's will for your life, there it is. He wants you to be holy. But he goes on to say some other things that God wants for each of us. Let's read God's word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Finally, dear brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk or live your life and to please God, just as you are doing already, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, which is the big word for being holy. This is the will of God, you being holy. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and What's that word? Honor? Sorry. I'm having cataract surgery in a month or so, and so some of the words are getting... I know a person as young as me having cataract surgery seems weird, but um, anyway. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner because God is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit, who gives his Holy Spirit to us, to you. Excuse me. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your own hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I'm not going to address you this morning as people who don't love one another. That would be wrong. You wouldn't be part of a congregation if you didn't have some love for the brethren. But as Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica, I know you already love one another. You have a reputation in this area of the Roman Empire for being a loving people. But it's not a one-shot deal. It's not something you do once and say, yeah, I loved once, but I've moved on to other things. No, you're to be more and more loving over the course of your life. And he exhorts these people, I want you to grow in your love. Since the fall of our first parents, love has been a very scarce commodity on this planet. Like I tried to tell you in my little brief introduction, everybody in the radio sings about love, but I hope you don't base your view of reality on what you hear on the radio. There's very little love in this world. Years ago, a man in my church who was interested in astronomy gave me a picture taken by NASA. That's the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And it was, a, it was continual photographs of the world at night. Now, obviously, you can't get the whole world from one shot because you can't be on the other side. But as the satellite flew around the earth, it took photos of all the planet at night. And it's a very fascinating photo to study because you can see where civilization is because that's where the lights are. But there's vast stretches, Siberia, the Sahara, the Amazon, parts of the American West, where there's hardly any lights. Why would it be dark? 
because there's no civilization there. There's no cities and towns to light up the night sky. And it's fascinating. In fact, as you look at North Korea, North Korea is in the northern part of the, what's called the Korean Peninsula. You have South Korea. You have the 38th parallel that was drawn as a buffer after the end of the Korean War. And then you have North Korea. But if you look on the map, South Korea appears to be an island. It's not attached to anything. Why is that? Because North Korea turns its lights off at night. Isn't that strange? They turn their lights off at night, so you have no drain on the power grid, but you don't have any illumination either. Kind of a metaphor for what's going on in that very uh, hard, oppressed country. Anyway, if we were to take a picture of the earth in the first century, and the only thing that was to light up where the light of God was, the light of the gospel, what would the earth look like? If you took a panoramic shot of the whole earth, where is their gospel truth? Where is their gospel knowledge? Where is the truth about God known? The whole planet would be dark except one little sliver of land on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea between Africa and the south and Europe and the north. At the eastern end, there's a little sliver of biblical Israel, and that's the only place on the planet where there was biblical light, where there was truth, where the gospel was shining. Christ, the light of the world, came into the world, and one of the great things that Christ did for the world was he gave us love. I know everybody talks about it. I get it. I grew up in America. I grew up listening to the radio. Everybody talks about love. But who's going to start the loving and who's going to keep it going? Why do relationships break up? They once swore they loved each other. Well, our love grew cold, or we fell out of love, or the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back, and all the other excuses that people have said. Well, that's because they don't really know true love. We don't know true love until we understand God's love. And we don't really know true, God until, true love until we experience God's love. And so today I wanted to talk to you about what God means when the Lord Jesus himself says, I want you to love one another. The Old Testament people of God were taught to love God, and they were taught to love their neighbor as themselves. It's not true when people say, well, the Old Testament God was mean, and the New Testament God, he's real sweet, he's a real sweetheart. Well, that's not true. There are several commands in the Old Testament that are just repeated in the New Testament that we ought to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ought to love one another. That's repeated in several Old Testament books. But what does it mean to actually see love in action? What does it mean to experience love didn't become that much of a reality until God the Son, the one who brought light and love to the world, came into the world. I'm going to try to show you four things today real quick. First of all, let's look at what our Lord said in his last message to his disciples. On the last day of your life, the last time you're going to be with your key men, whatever directives you would give to those key men are probably important. We're going to look at what our Lord said to the disciples in the upper room that last night. Number two, we're going to look at what the Apostle John, who was one of those men in the upper room, what he later taught people under his ministry. So we're going to look at the idea of Christian love in his epistle real quick, First John. And then we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul, who came to the kingdom late, who was converted late in life, later in life. And we're going to look at First Thessalonians. We're going to go back here and look more closely at what he says about love. And then finally, we're going to say, how can you and I grow to be more loving people? This is the second time I've given this message. I gave it to the uh, meeting this last summer of the Texas Area Association of Reformed Baptist Churches. We had a Sunday night worship service. I gave this message. People perceive or sometimes accuse Reformed Baptists of being all about doctrine and not about love. And I don't think that's true because you can't love people apart from the truth. I can't love you with heresy, okay? So it's important that we speak the truth in love, but we need, to do, we need to have the truth and we need to have love. And it's important that we learn the importance of loving one another. My hope for your church and for any church I'm a part of or have pastored is this. People may not quite get what you believe, or they may think, wow, what you guys believe is weird. But you know, those people sure know how to love one another. They're very loving people. And that's a good testimony. And the early church was able to bear the same testimony. We'll come back to that later. Let's look at the night that our Lord was betrayed. Let's look at John's Gospel, chapter 13. 
If you have your Bible, turn to John 13. I'm going to point out a couple of verses for you quickly. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, those five chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, those five chapters were all that our Lord taught on the last night of his life. He was with his men in the upper room. He said, I've got some heavy-duty things to teach you. Sit down, pay close attention, and the Holy Spirit will bring back to your remembrance things that I've said tonight. But this is what you need to know. If you're training men and you know you're going to check out, if you're training men and you know you're never going to see them again in one sense, you want to make sure they get the most important things. And so the upper room discourse, as these chapters are called, are some heavy-duty, important teaching of our Lord about what he wants from his people, what he's planning to do with his people. So look in John 13, look in verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, a question you should ask yourself, what does he mean by calling this a new commandment? I mean, we're told to love each other in the, in the Old Testament, aren't we? How is this a new commandment? Is he saying that he's different from the Father? Well, you've heard what God the Father said in the Old Testament, but I got some new stuff for you. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes people divide the Trinity by hitting the Father against the Son. Well, the Father gave the Ten Commandments, but the Son overrode the Ten Commandments and gave his own thing. The Father and the Son should never be pitted against each other. That's a terrible way to do theology. But what does it mean this is a new commandment? Well, think about it. God had become a man. God had visited his people. God showed people what true love is like, and he's about to show them to the uppermost. It says earlier in John 13, he says, having loved his men to the very end, he now showed them how much he loved them, and he got up from the table, and he put a towel around his waist, and he washed the disciples' feet. He was about to die. He was to prove his love for them. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said, than he lay down his life for his friends. Love had visited this planet, love incarnate. And he's saying, you have no excuse of saying, well, I don't know what love's like. One of the worst things I despise is to, is to counsel a couple who are having marital problems. I'll pick on the man in this illustration. And the man says, well, tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, it just really thrills his wife to hear that, right? That he has no clue, no, no any sign of creativity in what he needs to do. But, but true love has energy. True love thinks about things. True love understands Greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you have no excuse not to know what love's like. I've lived it out before you. I've washed your feet. I'm about to die for you. Christ loves his people in a new way in this sinful world, and Christians are to be different. One journalist in America was interviewed, and he was asked, why is it that journalists don't go after Muslims? They don't call out all the things that Muslims do and Islam is guilty of. But you, he said, but you pick on Christians. Why is that? You, you point out Christians' flaws. You showcase their errors. Why, why, what's the deal? Why the hypocrisy? He goes, well, that's easy. Muslims will kill us if we do that. The Christians will turn the other cheek and they won't do harm us. But that's part of Christian love. I can love my enemies. I can love people who treat me despicably. I can love people who caricature me and say all kinds of evil about me. In fact, didn't Jesus say that if you love only the people who love you, what's so big about that? He goes, even the Pharisees do that. But to love your enemies, to be gracious to those who are not gracious to you, that is uniquely Christian ethic. Look down in chapter 15, verse 12. This is my command, that you love one another as I have loved you. Christ is, is providing the supreme example. God became a man. C.S. Lewis said rightly, Christmas is the great miracle. Once God determined to become a man, Easter is going to happen. But the question was, would God set aside his deity and become a human being? Would God set aside his glory and become a human being, so to speak? And he did. Easter was going to happen once God purposed to send his son to save sinners. And we should view Christmas as more of a miracle than, than we often do. I know it's about toys and getting stuff, but hopefully by the time you reach a certain age, you grow out of that and you think about the spiritual meaning of it. 
This is my command that you love one another just as I have loved you. Well, how has Jesus Christ loved me? He left the glories of heaven and became a man. In Philippians 2, when it says that even though he existed in the form of God, it says he didn't grasp, and it's a hard word to translate, to put it in context, he didn't grasp his prerogatives of God. What does that mean he didn't cling to? I demand to be treated as God, and I will be treated as God, and I will never humble myself, and I will never lower myself. I'm God Almighty. I've been worshipped by angels for eternity, or since we created them. And you think I'm going to set that aside? You've got another thing coming. That's not the voice of our Lord. He didn't cling to his prerogatives as God. He could let go, and I'll be treated shabbily. I'll be treated poorly to show you how much I love you and I'm willing to invest in you. John 15, verse 17. Third time now. God doesn't repeat himself because he's forgetful. He repeats himself so we understand. And when he says something three times, done, done deal. These things I command you that you love one another. Now this is a command. It's not a hint. It's not a suggestion. It's not saying, hey, you got some extra time and money this month? Maybe you could be more loving. No. It means I'm to be loving like Christ is loving. I'm to learn that. You go, I didn't come from a loving family. I wasn't born in a Christian home. I've got so much learned about love. Join the club. We've all got a lot to learn about love. That doesn't mean we don't aim to grow in that area. There's lots of different areas of our Christian life where we want to grow because we're playing catch-up. Maybe we didn't learn about that. I've known people who were converted at 21. Great, their lives were changed. But they had a terrible upbringing, and they played catch-up for years, filling all the potholes that were left behind by a family that didn't really demonstrate the things that a family might or ought to, to, to demonstrate. Did you grow up in a home that that wasn't a postcard? Did you grow up in a home that wasn't a Hallmark movie? And did you not get certain things you wish you had gotten? Well, that's true for me. I'm sure it's true for most of the people in this room. But that means you've got something to work on, and that is learning, in this case, learning to be a loving person. Jesus says, I command you, I want you to learn to love one another. Now, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John was there that night. He was the disciple who was closest to our Lord. He was a cousin of our Lord. And we know from other things about the, that night at the upper room and the Last Supper that he leaned on Christ's breast, so to speak, as you're sitting with one elbow on the table and your feet are out this way and the table's here. You're kind of all right around each other and he's closest to our Lord. John got it. He understood what was going on here. And so not only did he record that in his gospel, but turn back to the back of the New Testament for his epistle, his letters. First John, Second John, Third John. And we'll see that six times the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John talks about love in his letters here. First, excuse me, the Gospel of John ends, I write this stuff to you in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, you might have eternal life in his name. Okay, well, let's say you read the Gospel of John, you believe what you read, you're saved, but you wonder about assurance. How do I know that I'm really a Christian? How do I know that I savingly believed? Well, in 1 John, John says, these, these things, in 1 John I write to you, in order that you can understand that he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. These things I write to you in order that you might guess, hope, pray, cross your fingers. No, in order that you might know that you have eternal life. First John was written to give assurance. He gave some vital signs. We're not going to go into all that, but one of the vital signs, he says, if you've really become a Christian, you're going to learn to love. If you've really become a Christian, you're going to learn to love. Now, I've known people, often it's been men, but sometimes it's been women who, oh, you mean I'm going to have to start hugging people and do stuff like that? I'm not a hugger. That's fine. I didn't really haven't talked about hugging yet. Haven't talked about greeting one another with a holy kiss yet. I'm not sure how many of you I want to greet with a holy kiss, actually. But um, anyway, that was a cultural expression. That's not a universal expression. But um, what does it mean to grow in love? Well, First John chapter three, John starts talking about it. He says this, verse eleven. 
This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, what does he mean you've heard it from the beginning? From your first days as a Christian, what are the things you pick up? Christians ought to love one another. They certainly ought to love the Lord Jesus and love the God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but we're to love our neighbors ourselves, beginning with our nearest neighbors, which is usually our family, and then other people, even loving our enemies. He says, you've heard from the beginning that we ought to love one another. Okay? Chapter 3, look to verse 23. This is his commandment. I didn't make this stuff up. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Now John's saying, it wasn't something I thought up as an apostle. I'm repeating what was told us by the Father and by the Son. Chapter 3, verse, maybe 20, it was 27. I think I mistyped it. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Is that 27? I'm sorry? We're still in chapter 3, I think. Maybe it's chapter 4. 4 verse 7. Somewhere in the New Testament. Okay. First John 4, 7. Let's try that. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. I was, I've shared parts of my testimony in the past. I was 21. I was a junior in college when the Lord saved me. And I had been listening to the radio and listening to people talk about love for years. And the Beatles would sing about all you need is love. And Captain and Tennille, love will keep us together. As I watched the divorce rate go. And so the question is, really? Who's going to start the loving? And who's going to keep it going? Seriously. People talk about love, but talk's cheap. Who's going to start the loving and who's going to keep it going? I come to Christ in the middle of watching all the world around me, seeing my own sinful heart, and God supernaturally gives me a new heart, a new life. I'm a new person. And I begin to experience and begin to actually have love for other people. Like my weird fraternity brothers in the college where I attended, some of them I liked and some of them I didn't, but suddenly I had a compassion for virtually all of them, some of the people who weren't very lovable, God gave me a love for. That wasn't me. I'm not taking any credit like I was some super Christian. I was a baby Christian. But I began to learn something about this Christian love. Did God love only the pretty people, the rich people, the people who would enhance his reputation? Or did he choose the nobodies of this world in order that they might experience his grace? He chose nobodies like us to be his, his children, his members of his kingdom. And so he says, if I so loved you, then you ought to be able to love others also. Let us love one another, for love is from God. It's not from what you hear on the radio. It's not what your boyfriend whispers in your ear. It's not what your girlfriend reciprocates to you. Love is from God. And whoever loves, in a biblical sense, has been born of God and knows God. It's a mark of a true Christian. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. That's not this kind of meeting. But if I ask you, would people think of you as a loving person? What would, how would you answer that? If I would ask some of the people who know you, oh, yeah, man, he's really a loving guy. She's really a loving gal. Would people say that about you? Would people in the church say that about you? Well, let's start here at the church level. Are you known for your love? We ought to be. He says in chapter 4, verse 11, I think I got this one right. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, Paul says in Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God didn't choose the rich, the powerful, or the wealthy. He chose the nobodies of the world to be his children. God had compassion on people who wouldn't enhance his stature. Look at all these rich people and smart people who are on my team. I choose nobodies to lavish my love upon them. And then he says, if God so loved us, can't we turn around and love other people in the same way? He says in verse 12, the next verse, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
love for others, not, not all the time, not 24-7, not perfectly, but a genuine love for others and hopefully a growing love for others is the mark of a true Christian. And one of the ways I could tell that I was growing, almost against, not against my will, but against my effort, was I saw myself changing from the inside out. It really is a supernatural rebirth. I'm starting to love people that heretofore I had not seen as lovable, and I didn't want to love them. Now, I'm not saying I started going up and hugging guys. I'm not talking about that. I haven't got into the details of what love would look like, but it has to begin with a heart attitude. Am I a loving person? Do I love other people? And only one of the time in Second John, verse 5, he's writing to a Christian woman, Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one you've had from the beginning, that we love one another. Again, he's reminding this woman that that's basic Christian teaching. New members class, number one. Christianity 101. If you're a Christian, you become a loving person. Again, even that journalist had to admit, well, we don't write against the Muslims because they'll probably put a hit out on us and kill us. But we can say all kinds of nasty things about Christians because they won't hurt you and they'll turn the other cheek or they might actually love you. That's a backhanded compliment. I would hope that we would practice that more and more. So this is the six times the Apostle John in his letters talks about Christ's command that we ought to love one another. Let's dial it up one more notch. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in his letters to the Thessalonians. So go back to 1 Thessalonians and see what he says here. He mentions loving each other and the love of God ten times in his epistles. Now, the, the Thessalonian church is a good case in point. The Thessalonian was made up of a, it was, it was a group of billionaires who lived together in the city of Thessalonica, and they were all gra- graduated from the University of Athens and Athens Tech, and so they were really a great group of people for God to save. Well, if you know anything about your New Testament, the Thessalonians were poor and persecuted. And do you know what came out of their poverty and their persecution? Generosity and love. People of the world goes, no, that doesn't happen. You don't take poor people and persecute them and then have generosity and love come out of that. But that's exactly what happened. If you will, would go back and read uh, the two letters to the Thessalonians, he talks about that. You guys have been amazing, he says. You've been a loving people, and then he praises them also. In their poverty, they were generous givers. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. We, thank, we, we give thanks to God, remembering your work of faith and labor of love. Your labor of love. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, love isn't a feeling. It's not a one-time deal. You work at loving. Marriages that stay together stay together because husband and wife work at loving each other. It's not like you take a love pill and you go, oh, now I'm great, I'm fixed, and I can never have to worry about this. But you work at loving each other. It's a labor of love. The Thessalonians worked at it. And so sometimes you go, well, I tried to be nice to that person, and they didn't seem to care, so I quit. Well, aren't you glad the Lord didn't do that with you? I tried to give the gospel to them, but they blew it off, so they can go to hell for all I care. Was that the Lord's attitude toward us? Was he patient and gracious with us? Was he patient and gracious with you? Maybe we can be patient and gracious and work at a labor of love for other people. It's more than a feeling. It's an act of the will exercised on behalf of somebody else. Think of the Good Samaritan You know the story that Jesus told when uh, he was asked by a lawyer, which would be more, and the Jewish lawyer was more like a seminary professor, well, Jesus, and then he told the story of this guy who was robbed and beaten up and left for dead in the ditch, and he was a Samaritan. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jews and half of the other people who lived around there, and the Jews despised them for being half-breeds. And what's more, they set up their own rival worship system in the town of, just drew a blank, it's, it's a Mount Gerizim, and the town is, oh well, it'll probably hit me on the way home. Anyway, they had their rival system. You don't have to go to Jerusalem, you don't have to go to the temple, we got our own deal working here. It's kind of a modular system we've set up, but it still works, and you can come and worship here. And so there was a rivalry there. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans reciprocated. So here's a guy lying in a ditch, And then the story, 
as Jesus tells it, three different people go by. There's a Pharisee, and there's a lawyer goes by, and they both sniff and look at the guy. I don't really, I'm not into saving people in the ditch. I'm not into saving people of a different religion in the ditch. I'm not into saving people of a different religion, a different race in a ditch. That's not my thing, so they go by. And it says the Samaritan comes by, and he sees, I'm sorry, he sees the Jew in the ditch who's been beaten up and left for dead, and he has compassion on the man, drags him out, binds his wounds a little bit, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, pays for him to be taken care of there. Inns functioned as close to a hospital as you could have in that century. And Jesus said, so who was it who had compassion on the man who really loved the man? Well, I guess it was the guy who stopped and helped him, the guy who acted out his compassion. So Jesus said, well, that's what real love looks like. That's what I want you to be. And so it's a labor of love. It wasn't, oh, you know, I just have a thing for, for Jews in the ditch, and I just feel so special for him, and I think he warm thoughts toward you, buddy, and then go on. That would be our culture. There used to be one TV show when somebody died in the show, the people said, we'll be thinking warm thoughts for you. Like, that's going to do what? In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love. These people believe God. They didn't have any worldly wealth, but they had great faith in the Lord, and they believed his promises. So they were experiencing the wealth of eternity kind of early. They had great faith in God, and it also says they had love. Timothy reported to Paul about the great love, the persevering faith, and the loving despite persecution and hardship. Then in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, This is how I'm praying for you. May the Lord make you increase and abound or grow in love for one another and for all as we do for you. I want you to keep growing in love. I know you're already loving. You've got a reputation for being loving. That's wonderful. But you don't stop. You don't say, well, I did it for six months. Now I'm, now I'm, I'm doing Pilates or something like that. Well, no, you don't give it up and go on to other things. You keep on loving. We're to be loving each other all the time. And I've had instances where some people I just found it hard to love, and so I had to deal with my attitude toward them. I wouldn't want to be trapped on a deserted island with that person. So what am I going to have to do about my attitude? Am I going to change them? Probably not. But my attitude has to change. That you increase and abound in love, and you keep on doing more and more. Chapter 4, verse 9, we read. Now he says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you about it, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You learned as basic Christianity 101 to love each other. So I'm not having to write to you to tell you to love in the first place. I'm just saying keep on doing it. Keep on doing it. What a sad world this would be if there wasn't the leaven, if there wasn't the... um, ameliorating effects of Christian love. If you would want to live in a really bad place, go to a place where there's no Christians and there's no love. You know, parts of the United States that have had very little Christian influence, they never saw any revivals there. There are very few churches there. are very hard places to live. You talk to Christians. Well, you know, I lived in Seattle for several years, but the people there were cold. Or I lived in New England for several years, and the people there were cold. Well, they're sinners like everybody else. But it's hard to live in a place where there isn't much Christian TLC leavening the culture, making the culture a little bit better. Parts of the country that have a lot of Christians in them feel different than other parts of the country simply because of the leavening influence of loving Christians being there. When we move from Georgia to Texas, there's a high percentage of believers in the southeast, but there's a high percentage of believers here in Texas. When we move to Texas looking for housing, looking to set up shop here in a new state we've never lived in, in the golden years of our life, we started meeting some Christians, just bumped into them as we went in stores or went to do this or that, and people were very gracious to us. It felt great. Now imagine how it would have felt if people had been harsh and cruel and rude, and it would have been a completely different experience. Christian love is a very, very important thing, not only for the church, but even for the culture around us. You wouldn't want to live in America if there weren't very many Christians here to leaven the influence of sin. Chapter 4, verse 10, he says, 
Indeed, that is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, not just to the believers here in your church in Thessalonica, and not just to the people in your region, but we want you to continue to grow in your love. And later he will go on to say, you all are increasing in your love. Chapter 5, verse 8. Let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. There are two things that should mark us out as Christians. You know, a breastplate is not only what protects you from fiery arrows, but also what they used to put paintings on the breastplate of, of knights, for example. It would be the, the crest of who you were representing or something about they'd put a, a dragon or something to show you you're a ferocious knight. But on the Christian breastplate, there should be faith and love. These people trust God, and these people love God, and they love one another. And that's a real hallmark of a Christian group. They love God, they love each other, and they believe God's word and trust him. Chapter 5, verse 13. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. If you've ever been a leader, if you've ever been a husband or a wife with several kids, leadership isn't always appreciated. When you have to give your kids a spanking or tell them, no, you're only three, you're not going to have an Xbox. And all the things that, you know, the, the, the hard things you have to say to children. Rarely do they go, oh, thank you, wise and benevolent parent, for telling me what I didn't want to hear. Uh, if they said that, you'd probably go into cardiac arrest and we'd have to put the defibrillator and revive you. Um, With leadership sometimes comes the reality that people don't appreciate all that you have to do as leaders. And Paul says, look, in your learning to love one another, don't forget to love your leaders. Now, Dennis is probably going to stand on the floor and get a lot of hugs as you exit today, but um, if you have more and more leaders in the years to come, don't forget to love them and appreciate them. They don't do what they do because they're paid big bucks or because they think they're better than you. They're trying to be faithful to Christ and do the right thing and be sure to express your love and appreciation to them. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians, there's one reference to love. And this is where he pats them on the back. He says, chapter 1, verse 3, because your faith is growing abundantly, they were growing in faith, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. They were growing as Christians. Their faith was growing. They were trusting God more. And they were loving one another more. So his prayers for them and his exhortations to them in his first letter paid off so that when he wrote the second letter, he can say, boy, you guys are growing. You're doing a good job. The Lord's really working in your midst. So for Paul, love is something that is very important to a local church. He just harps on this in his letters to the Thessalonians. So here John writes to the churches under his care and says, now I want you to understand that love is a basic foundational principle of being a Christian. You may come from a background where you know very little about love. Fine. You get to play catch-up. But you can't say, well, you know, love isn't my thing. Well, if love isn't your thing, that you're not a Christian. Because it says in Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit of God, what he produces in a believer's life, the supernatural new birth, 5.23, the fruit of the Spirit is Love. Joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. The first thing he mentions is love. It's the fruit of the Spirit. If I've not yet become a loving person, then I need to ask myself, why do I really think I'm a Christian if I don't have any love? I don't love those around me, and I don't love the Lord. Something's been been disconnected. I'm not, not going to take the time to go through our confession, but believe it or not, there's sections of our confession which talk about the importance of love. Not only love within a church, but churches for each other. We pray for sovereign joy regularly at Heritage Baptist in Mansfield. We pray for a pastor for you. Uh, They send me up here to help out. We're going to find some other people to help out too. Uh, We're praying with you regarding what the Lord's will is for Dabney Algeen. It's important to have church-to-church love and not just love for the people in my immediate context. We pray for churches all over the country. We pray for churches in Canada. We pray for churches that aren't part of our group, so to speak. We pray for gospel pastors everywhere. And that's a way of showing love, is praying for one another. Well, let's, practically speaking, I'll close my message with how can we grow in love for one another? I'm not going to talk about so much about love for the Lord, but 
How can we grow in love for one another? Because that was the first command that Jesus gave in the upper room. I want you to love one another. And we had seen, and you can just read the chapters before that, the disciples were competitive. You know, after Jesus dies, who do you think is going to be top dog? Wouldn't you like to hear your, your closest guys talking about that when you're getting ready to die and they're already jockeying for position? Who's going to be the top dog after you die? Isn't that disconcerting, disheartening, sad even? So, yes, they were competitive. They were garden variety sinners just like you and me. But the Lord expected that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the changes that were going to be wrought in their lives, that they would be different and they would learn to love one another. So I have some suggestions of how we might do that better. First of all, we can grow in our love for one another by being careful how we speak to one another. Nothing's easier than to talk. Nothing's harder than to talk well. Just like nothing's easier than to think, nothing's harder than to think well. We're to speak, the Bible says, what's good for edification. Edification means to build others up. One year in my pastorate, we had several people move down from New York City, move to Atlanta, and they ended up in our church. They'd been in a sister church in Long Island. They were with us, and I noticed something about them. I didn't say anything for a while, but it came to a head one Saturday morning. We had a bunch of tons of children in our church, and we had a soccer league, and I went over to see the soccer kids play, and there were a bunch of the New Yorkers were standing around talking to each other. Is anybody here from New York? Let me see their hands before I insult you. Anyway, uh, and they were zinging each other. They were cutting each other down. They were making little snide remarks. And I came up, and of course, I got the brunt of all of their snide remarks. And I just kind of stood there, and I said, you know, I get it. I understand something about how New York City operates. If nobody's picked on you or said anything like that to you, they probably don't like you. But I said, down here in the South, they'll just think you're obnoxious. And everybody got silent. People don't like to be picked on. They don't like to be cut up in front of other people. And that's something you're going to have to learn to put to death if you want to be successful as a Christian in the South. Southerners don't like being picked on and cut up. And you're going to go, whoa, you're a fun guy. Well, they needed to hear it. The saints in Georgia didn't need to be cut up. The devil is already doing a fine job. We don't need to cut on one another. If you knew that one person, every time you saw them, they would give you a zinger, would you look forward to seeing them ever? Those are the kind of people you avoid. So it's important that we speak to each other in a building up an encouraging way, a kind way, goodness, affirmation, outright love. Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Proverbs 27.5. Better is open love than love that is concealed. I can remember where I was sitting the day I read that and it dawned on me what's going on here. Were there people that I loved? Yeah. Had I ever told them that I loved them? No. Several of them were guys. You don't tell guys you love them. I mean, at least you didn't used to in the culture. The culture has changed, but I'm not talking about that kind of love. I'm talking about homosexual love. I'm talking about brother-to-brother love. And I thought, boy... If I tell my roommate, who was a young Christian too, will he think I'm weird? Well, I'm supposed to communicate my love for my brethren. So I kind of screwed up my courage, and Don's here, and I'm here, and we're standing around talking, being guys. And I said, Don, I just want you to know, here we go, uh, I love you very much. And he looked at the ground, and he kind of kicked the ground, and he goes, back at you. (laughs) Which is... Close to a hug as you're going to get it from another guy in that kind of situation. And then my wife's brother, my brother-in-law, who was also a close friend, I remember telling him I loved him. And he, was, he kind of looked at the ground, too, and got real uncomfortable, and, but then expressed affirmation and love back. And it had a good impact because it wasn't too long after that, after I explained to him why I was telling him I loved him, was that um, he, was, he lived in the basement of his parents' home, my in-laws, future in-laws, and... One day, not long after that, he was in the basement coming upstairs and his mom was coming down the stairs to the basement where the washing machine was with a load of clothes. And as he went by her on the stairs, he said, Mom, I love you. And then he kind of ran up the stairs. And she told me later she sat in the stairs and cried because Rick wasn't the kind of person to be gushy or 
like that. But he told her out of the clear blue that he loved her. Now, I'm not saying I take credit for that, but we were learning to express love for people we love. Are there people that you've never told that you love them that you're kind of past due? Paul told the Ephesian church that the way to grow in the grace of God was to be speaking the truth in love. I pray today that I would speak the truth in love to you. I, you know, if, if I'm yelling and screaming, yelling and screaming doesn't communicate love. I actually knew a, a pastor who was a, he, he beat his sheep regularly from the pulpit, and he was a very authoritarian and thankful he's out of the ministry. But he was speaking at a conference and haranguing people and being miserable. And he told this, this, the pastor who sponsored the conference, you know, in family devotions, it's important to yell a lot because that's where your authority comes from. I go, that guy has psychological problems. You don't yell in a living room? What does yelling communicate? Danger? Fire! Or anger? You don't communicate your love by yelling, this is the greatest food I've ever had! I mean, you just don't yell stuff around the house. It's just counterproductive. That's not how our emotions are wired. And so we need to speak the truth in love. And I had to tell a fellow pastor one time, my fellow pastor, he was the senior pastor and I was the junior pastor. And I had to sit down with him. I said, brother, you're a great preacher, but you only have two emotions from the pulpit. Anger and alarm. Because you yell a lot, but then the rest of the time you're kind of a quiet person and so the yelling just kind of displaces all everything else and people think you're an angry person and most of the women in the church are scared to talk to you. They won't even come up to you and the men wet their pants when they have to come up and talk to you. Yelling fire isn't a way of communicating Christian love. If there's a fire, yell fire, but otherwise we need to speak to one another in a loving fashion. Even as pastors we need to learn that. I had a pastor friend of associate of mine, stay with us, and he was explaining something he had learned about preaching, and it clicked in my brain. He said, you know, not only do you need to understand the text, study the passage so you can explain it, but you need to embody the text. And he said, by that I mean, here's a pastor, passage on encouragement, and you're yelling at the people. Do you see the disconnect? What you're doing is like taking a rolling pin and flattening out the passage to fit your personality. I may have the gift of exhortation, but I can't be exhorting as, come on, you can do it, really, come on, let's try. I mean, like a coach would exhort you. But that's different than encouragement. I know it's hard right now. I'll wait for you, but I think you can get up and keep on going. That's a different whole kind of thing, and I have to be careful that when I preach, I'm embodying the text, what it says, I'm not overriding it by my personality, or what I perceive my gifts to be. We can grow in our love after learning to speak to one another by praying for one another. That's not hard. Let's say you begin to pray about your speech and how you talk to people. And no zingers, not cutting people down, not, you know, whatever. But you're learning to be edifying in your speech, but then praying for one another. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. I'm not going to ask you from that verse to die for your friends. I'm going to ask you to die to yourself for your friends. And pray for them. It takes time out of praying. Oh Lord, I got this problem and this problem and this problem. Larry's dying with cancer, but we'll get to that later. And I got this problem and this problem. I mean, can you die to yourself and spend some of your time praying for others? J.C. Ryle said this. He's one of our heroes, I think. He loves me best who loves me in his prayers. Can you do anything higher for a person than to bring them before the throne of grace and to plead their case before Almighty God and say, my brother, my sister is in this situation. This family's facing this. This person's as lost as a mackerel. Oh, Lord, help them. In fact, in the scripture, it, as much as says it's sin if a minister doesn't pray for his people. Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for these people. And the apostles in Acts 6, 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
That's called upon us to, as we're going to be elders as we need to pray for our people. I need to be constantly lifting the sheep before the Lord if I'm to be a shepherd. Our confession even talks about the importance of praying for one another in our church and praying for other churches. God's given you persevering grace. I'm so proud of you. You've persevered. You lost your shepherd. That was a tough hit. But you're still here. By the grace of God, you're still here. You're still together. Things are, might, are not maybe what you thought they might be at this point, but it's not in the tank. The church hasn't disappeared. You all haven't gone shriveled up spiritually that I can tell. God's been gracious to you. People all over are praying for you. You kind of go, well, I kind of thought it was because my spiritual biceps were so big. No. Because it looks like a mosquito bite. It's not a bicep, that's a mosquito bite. Uh, that we're not spiritual giants. We're weaklings who need others to pray for us. So being in prayer for one another. Having a list of people that I pray for. Hey, you know, like you don't just go to the grocery store and say, I'm going to wing it and see how the Spirit leads me to get groceries. You could come home with some weird stuff and have some weird meals. Ladies, if you do that, shame on you. Or men, if you do that, shame on you. You need to have a list. Hey, how about a list of prayer? That way I can remember who I'm praying for. I just don't have to pray the Holy Spirit would bring people to mind, which is not a wrong thing. But how about actually having a list of praying for people? Just a thought. Third, we can grow in our love by real sacrificial deeds we do for each other. God so loved the world that he prayed about it and organized a committee of angels to go down and look and see what the problem was and to report back in six months. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. But God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrificial love is part of being a Christian. It means dying to myself. Now, sometimes dying to myself can be easy, taking time out from my schedule to pray for others. But sometimes it's taking, I'd rather do this, but I need to stay home tonight and help the wife take care of the kids because she's fried. The kids have been difficult, and I'm supposed to do this with my buddies, but I'm going to stay home and die to self and help her out. Now, again, she'd, she'd probably go into cardiac arrest. And she'd have to... You know, bring her back, but um, that's one aspect of dying to self. Or someone else is really hurting, and you give up an evening, you go by their house and listen to them and pray with them, or bring a casserole by, or send a card. This is a cold, cruel, cynical world where life is brutish and nasty, and then you die. That's how it is for the average person. I don't know how long you've been out of the world, but If you've ever been in the world very long as an adult, you see what the world's like. It's not a happy, pretty place. And who is going to make this world different if Christians aren't displaying sacrificial love? You know, why did the early church succeed? Other than the fact, of course, God the Holy Spirit was keeping them, but why did they succeed? Well, they they out-taught the pagans. The pagans had their ideas, and Christians taught amazing truths. They outpreached the philosophers and the religious leaders of the first century. The Christians outlived their competitors. They outdied their competitors. They outloved their competitors from the various religions and cults and philosophies of the first world, first century world. If you read books about the early church, they were persecuted like crazy. And yet the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more you squeeze Christians, they just went out and scattered everywhere and continued to be loving and gracious where they went. In the first few centuries, when plagues hit, all the wealthy Roman citizens went out to the country in places where they could find clean air because the cities were so congested and, and vermin-ridden. It was the Christians who stayed behind. It was the Christians who nurtured other people's kids. It was the Christians who picked up stray kids off the street. It was the Christians who opposed infanticide and first-century abortion. Christians took care of widows and orphans. They stayed back in the cities and died while the rich people fled to the countryside. We have the Bible on our side. We have church history on our side. We must love one another such that other people will say, you know, I don't entirely get this Reformation doctrine that they've picked up. They say it's the gospel, 
but I cannot deny their quality of life. They're just different people. They're different people. My, how they love one another. Final point, and I'll quit here. I have a sundial up here, but I can't see the sun, so it doesn't work indoors. So that's why. That was a little humor, too. Anyway, um, a final way you can be loving is this, that you can pursue holiness. Being a loving person is an aspect of being Christ-like. Being holy is an aspect of being Christ-like. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, and 13. May the Lord help you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. If you become a loving person and become a holy person, this is establishing your relationship before God. Jesus says in Matthew 24, in the last days, because law-breaking is going to become so prevalent, most people's love will grow cold. If you live in a culture where everybody's breaking laws most of the time, even if they're not caught, it's not going to be a very loving culture. Disregarding God's laws, flouting God's laws, mocking God's laws, that's the marks of a degenerating culture, a dying culture, a Romans 1 culture. And love is one of the first casualties in a culture like this. No, no civilization in the history of the world has ever recovered from a divorce rate above 25%. We haven't been at 25% for decades. We're up in the 40s. For a while, we're in the 50s. Now, I'm not trying to rip off scabs from your scars of your divorce, for those of you who are divorced. I'm not trying to pick on you. But I'm saying that we need to learn to love one another so we don't have cyclical divorces, so we don't keep doing it. So many of you have grown up in divorced homes. You can tell me the pain that comes with that. What a difference it makes when people learn to love one another. Lying, stealing, committing adultery, murder, covetousness, violating the Lord's Day, taking God's name in vain, holding idols in your heart, worshiping other gods, just trashes, just trashes our lives and makes us not very loving people. The great Jonathan Edwards, who was the pastor in New England during the First Great Awakening, wrote a book called Charity and Its Fruits, because in the King James Bible, charity was the English word for love. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is this. And in the King James, it says charity is this, charity is that. Well, he wrote a book, Charity and Its Fruits. What does Christian love really produce? And he said something non-Christians never appreciate, many, not, many Christians don't, he said, all the little kindnesses, all the little social graces that you experience are outworkings of Christian charity, Christian love. Holding the door for someone, assisting someone in or out, to, out of a car, standing up for a woman and letting her have your seat. All of the things we think are they're just petty little social graces. They're little earmarks of Christian love that have flowed out into the society. You know, guys, when you bring your wife out to the car... Open the door for her. You know, again, she might pass out and you might have to rush in and get a defibrillator, but hold the door for her or help her with things. We don't live in a culture with too much love, with too much TLC. It's becoming a very cold and bleak culture. Great lawlessness produces great cynicism, and our degraded culture really doesn't know how to think about love anymore. It really doesn't know what love is. Holiness is more than right knowledge. It means learning to love people, loving them in the truth. And it's beyond saying, and I'm not going to take five more minutes, but simply to say that the source of all this is God himself. In the, there's 136 verses in the Thessalonian epistles. In First and Second Thessalonians, there's 136 total verses. God himself is mentioned in 132 of them. So God's the subject of the letters to the Thessalonians. All the encouragements to keep on loving, to learn to love, to grow in love, it all flows out of loving the Lord and experiencing his love. I can think of a couple of people in my life I pray for. They grew up in a home without very much love. They're not the most loving people. They've never really learned to love. But they have responsibilities that require them to love. 
If you're a dad or a husband and you grew in a family where you didn't experience much love, pray that God the Holy Spirit would shed the love of Christ abroad in your heart more and more so you would have some experience and knowledge of learning to love your wife and your kids. Wives and moms, if you didn't grow up in a home with much Christian love and you kind of felt like trying to be a flower in the Arctic Circle, it was a cold place to try to blossom, pray that God the Holy Spirit would shed the love of Christ abroad in your heart, that you would know God's love for you, and out of that experience it would train you and teach you how to be more loving to others. Kids can learn to love their parents. Parents can learn to love their kids. In Titus chapter 2, it says, because of the way things are going to be, I'm going to have to teach women to love their husbands and to love their children. And the first time I read that, I go, well, I thought women automatically love the babies they birthed. Well, you don't have to look very far in the culture. Is that always true? Do women always love their kids? Sometimes they don't even like their kids. We need to learn this from the Lord. He loved unlovable people like us. Surely we can begin to learn a little bit of that and love one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you loved us. We didn't first love you. You first loved us. We were lost and clueless, consumed by our sins. As Titus said, hate, as Paul said to Titus, hating one another and being hated in return. But when the great love and kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, and he shed his love abroad in our hearts. Lord, would you train us? Would you teach us? Would you grow us up? Would you teach us to be loving husbands and fathers, wives and mothers, kids, Christians toward unbelievers, even toward our persecutors? May it be said of sovereign joy that they are a people who have learned to love, and they're one of the brightest spots in North Fort Worth. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.